from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Hello, everyone, and welcome to an interesting episode of Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. We continue with part two of our discussion on some pivotal cases that the Supreme Court will likely rule on during its 2020 term. Starting with defining executive privilege, a touchy subject these days, we'll move on to global warming and the environment, and we'll finish up with the hot-button topic, guns. This week, in particular, we're in danger of learning something. We have an amazing group joining us today, and I'm pleased to welcome Lori Dew. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because she's been anchor on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. We've also brought back Ed Warren, who was among Washington, D.C.'s most influential Supreme Court attorneys, with decades of experience as one of Washington's most insider-influential Supreme Court litigators with Kirkland & Ellis, where he has been of counsel since 2005. Now, of course, our co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, historian, international lecturer, and our human source book of historical expertise, Professor Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Great to see you again. So, Ed Larson, what is executive privilege, and was that really first tested by Nixon? Executive privilege is a certain sort of right that if there's a conversation or work within the executive branch, that we can keep this privileged and other people don't have to know about it. And the question is, how far it extends. What does it cover? Does it cover if Congress, which has a legitimate duty and right to oversee the executive branch, do they have a right to know this information? It was tested mightily, of course, in Nixon, who uh, President Nixon, who wanted to keep, of course, some of his very inflammatory comments, private. Was that the first time that executive privilege was tested with Nixon? Executive privilege goes all the way right. back to the Washington administration. Washington, when they when they were soliciting information about Jay's treaty, Jay's treaty involved a treaty with Great Britain that seemed like a turnover of all American rights, the British, as opposed to the French, when the American was was torn between support for the French and the British. The Congress asked for a variety of information, and to what George Washington said, no, you can't have certain internal information. And that started the issue. It's continued ever since. So it's a balancing test in every individual situation since the Supreme Court has had to deal with it. First of all, I think Ed is saying the same thing that, that I would say, which is uh, the executive branch under Article Two has the responsibility for implementing the laws and carrying them out. And in order to do that, you want to have an open discussion, pro and con, of the considerations which bear on taking one direction rather than another. So it's a privilege that has grown up in a kind of common law fashion. Another example would be grand jury secrecy, uh, which has a historical uh, predicate that which which is to say, you don't want the prosecutors maligning persons based upon evidence if they're not going to prosecute, and consequently, all that takes place in the grand jury is of that nature, and so we don't want to do that. Well, that's now, interesting. So, should Congress be investigating Trump if they're not going to prosecute? 
they are on stronger ground where they have an impeachment inquiry where they are carrying out their own responsibilities to impeach. Now, if what they are doing is asking for Trump's tax returns based upon some uh, fishing, expedition. fishing expedition, I think they might lose. On the other hand, if they have a genuine inquiry, then they are in stronger ground to seek pretty much anything. So, and and you mentioned a little while ago that you are capable of litigating on either side of a question. So we're going to test that model for just a second <laughs> sure. and have some fun. This is Kurt Coe versus uh, the United States government. Right. I'm asking you to be our attorney. Here's a dollar. I would like you to try for us the case where Trump is count- countermanding Congress's budget powers by declaring an emergency and shifting funds to his wall. I would like you to try the case or at least give us the summation on the case against him being able to call, uh, well, being I, able to create an emergency. It's hard to do it without a, without a statute in front of me because that's what the issue would turn on. But, uh, for example, let's take something that's a little further afield, but you're talking about uh, imposing tariffs on Canadian steel on the theory that that's a national emergency. I mean, you know, it's the same kind of idea because I understand the statute a little bit better. I think what you would be saying, really? I mean, national emergency was not intended to cover putting putting tariffs on our longest and most important traditional ally. You have to have a statute that gives you a jumping And sometimes off you can use that as an example of an abuse of yeah, power, right? right? No, you might be able to so use that So couldn't that be used in the case in your summation? Right. You might be able to say, depending on what the statute says. You know, I mean, those are the kinds of arguments that people can make. Yes, they make they they look for analogies to say this statute surely can't mean what the administration is saying because A, B, and C. That's the is it possible that you would be less likely to win the case you just tried in the court a year from now than five years ago? It's very hard to say. I mean, it, it really is hard to say. It is a statutory question. There is going to be skepticism at of wildly expansive interpretations there's this, there's a skepticism on both sides of the court, I think, about executive overreach. We have a crisis in government. That is that the Congress, who ought to be deciding so many of these important issues, is seemingly unwilling or unable to do it and feels comfortable passing the authority on to somebody else, namely agencies or the executive branch. And and on this issue, more than any other, if you look at the founding documents, if you look at the original intent of the Constitution, if you look at the, the ratification arguments, if you look at Philadelphia, they thought the most important, the most crucial defense of individual liberty with separation of powers. That's why they didn't even include a Bill of Rights in the original Constitution, because right. separation of powers. And the core of separation of powers was that Congress legislates, Congress appropriates, and the president merely, merely executes. The logic of President Trump taking 
funds appropriated for one purpose and using them for the wall, especially after Congress, bipartisan, both houses of Congress, said no, that so flies in the face of any originalist intent of the Constitution. And so it's going to be very curious whether these justices, people like Gorsuch and Alito, will use their true originalist principles or instead subvert them for ideological or partisan grounds. Okay, add one more point. First of all, Ed, I think it says it quite correctly. I mean, we always say, oh, we have a tripartite uh, government. Well, the founders, I think, uh, had the assumption, uh, worked on the assumption that we have a legislative branch and the other two are are secondary. Uh, And so we we have one uh, branch of government that is predominant and two that are supportive or secondary. Congress can't just pass uh, all this authority to the executive branch, that there's constitutional limits on how much Congress can give away of its legislative authority. But we've gotten to the point where what Congress does is they don't want to take the responsibility. They want to do things that sound good and then they pass the authority to to implement them to the agencies and then the agencies get all the blame when things don't turn out the way the public wants it to turn out. Laura, you had something you wanted to mention. So it's a big year coming up for the Supreme Court and it's been said that justices are more prone to agreement with other justices when they are in their first term. Brett Kavanaugh was in his first term, and interestingly enough, he had the highest frequency in the voting with the majority at 88% in his first term. Now that he's starting his second term, is he more likely to be less conciliatory as he now is beginning to establish himself more? Let me answer that because I th- I think there's a misperception of uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh with the assumption that they're just two peas in a pod. Uh, and I think that's not true. I think uh, Brett Kavanaugh is an institutionalist. If anybody on the court thinks like John Roberts about the reputation of the court, it's Brett Kavanaugh. So we, we've got to we've got to travel down uh, Ed Warren's uh, expertise here and. Uh, uh, talk to him about how some things are going to change on the Supreme Court. Ed, you've spent a lot of time adjudicating cases uh, and, and trying cases in the environmental uh, world. Now, it's been said that uh, when when Justice Anthony Kennedy was on the Supreme Court, that uh, generally they ran at about a 4-4 split between justices that were sympathetic toward environmental regulation versus those that oppose it. Well, it's all changed now, and it could change a lot more over the next year. How do you think that's going to affect cases like that? This administration has um, backed away from some very aggressive environmental uh, regulations under the Obama administration. I mean, EPA has really changed uh, as an example. For the, for uh, the sole purpose of uh, bolstering the economy? I, well, I think it's it's what Trump campaigned on, and I think he's been pretty successful in doing this, is 
lifting regulations on business and making business more profitable and more willing to hire and all. It's it's an economic... Can I talk to you about your opinion of some of these rollbacks? Let's, well, let's, let's talk about a few of them for a minute. Sure. Um, uh, here we are meeting in the middle, and, and uh, for a minute I'm going to have to help defend our listener. The uh, uh, Trump administration has decided to weaken the standards. This is all throughout the Midwest, as you know. Weaken the standards on methane emissions from landfills. Yeah. Help me understand that one. Methane emissions, and this is the longer-term concern from greenhouse gas emissions, is the tundra in Alaska Mm -hmm. and in the Arctic uh, has embedded in it a lot of uh, uh, methane. And if it melts and if it warms up, you're going to have substantial methane emissions uh, into the air. The issue is the methane emissions get into the atmosphere, and that's the global warming concern. I actually shortened the question because it was not just methane emissions from landfills. It's a lot of other emissions from landfills that are being basically I don't know the, the rules are I don't being know weakened. The, these are factual questions and will be brought before the court. Inter, inter, and one would hope that they would adjudicate based, right. based on the but, facts. But I think they will, they will adjudicate based upon, number one, what does the statute say? What is the authority of the EPA administrator? And number two, they'll be influenced by the facts. They'll be influenced by the facts of this is a big deal or not a big deal. The question on global warming is a tipping point issue. What pushes over the top? And while it's true that methane doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long as CO2, while it's there, it actually has a bigger impact. And if you get across the tipping point and start melting the tundra or melting the sea ice in the Arctic, you have a profound and truly um, irreversible impact on the global temperature and global environment going forward. And unfortunately... Because of uh, campaign contributions by the Koch brothers and a variety of different partisan issues, we haven't been able to address them, such as a lot of other countries in the world have. You know, there I disagree on the facts, which is to say, uh, while it is true that uh, the Trump administration backed out of the Paris Accords, and I think I have some pretty good reasons, pretty understandable reasons why they did that— the U.S. is help, help us the, out here. Go right to well, it. Well, let me say the U.S. Is, has continued to uh, reduce uh, CO2 emissions and probably at a rate higher than most European countries and certainly Asia. Shouldn't we be leading the world in this kind of thinking? Well, I, I think we are leading the world in this kind of thinking. And important. We're, we're leading the world by we've just rescinded water pollution regs for fracking on federal lands. Well, but we've loose, loosened offshore drilling safety regulations, which came in after the Deepwater Horizon explosion. We he, they've even reversed an executive order that cut federal government's own greenhouse gas emissions by 40% over the next 10 years. I don't think any of those issues are going to be very significant. But let me, let me tell you what I think it was behind the... I'm administ- sorry? I don't. I don't think that they... I think they are, are an immeasurable 
effect. Cutting the, the federal greenhouse gas emissions by 40% over 10 years? Oh, I mean, so Ed, is it practical or is it is it economically feasible or not? Is it What is it going to cost? Oh, what so are we're the back to that balancing act before yeah, with right. the dollar bills no, were but, on but, one but side me, and l- the l- environment. L- 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 just a second, Ed. While I agree with you that the bigger problem comes from various developing countries, the way the current administration, the Trump administration, has shifted the balance on coal to to placate the West Virginia electoral vote, four electoral votes or whatever it is from West Virginia, we are cutting back on any regulation of the use of coal in electric power, which frankly makes absolutely no well, it, sense. It makes no sense. And, and, but it's also a phony uh, proposition. You know, to just take a headline saying, oh, the administration is doing this, administration is doing this, it, it may be that it's a terrible thing. It may be that you're talking about uh, things that cost millions and millions and millions of dollars and do almost nothing. But that is what the conservatives like to say when they want to shelve a, a conversation. That doesn't mean so they're I'm not going to let you get away with it when we've just delayed for the next two years, and apparently it may get delayed longer, an EPA rule regulating toxic discharge, including mercury, by the way, from power plants into public waterways. That's a zero. And the mercury ends up in our fish and our food, where yeah. children can be poisoned by it. And this adults, is a, we can this all is a, be poisoned by it. Look, I don't know the facts, again, but I, I agree that mercury as a heavy metal bioaccumulates in fish, and it is a danger, no, no question about that. But, you know, what, what, what you always have to ask the question is, so what, what are the benefits? Are they really measurable, or is this just an emotional issue? And what are the costs? I'm going to let you off the hook for a few minutes on the environmental side because we're going to move away for about 30 seconds. And when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about a very sensitive issue and how you think the Supreme Court will rule on guns. Hi, my name is Chris Porter from When Last I Left. The show you've been listening to is sponsored by Proudsource Water. Not only do they distribute their water in these stylish and recyclable aluminum bottles, but the water itself is sustainably sourced and naturally filtered. Proudsource Water believes in the ripple effects, that one person's actions can impact the world for the better. You do your part, and I do mine, and maybe we come out better than we started. So go to ProudsourceWater.com to learn more about the company, their vision, and their water. Leave the world better than you found it. Drink Proudsource Water. Welcome back to Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Laurie Dew, hanging out today in the studio, along with our hosts, Bill Curtis and Ed Larson, and our guest, Ed Warren. So, fellas, the first major gun-related case to be heard by the Supreme Court in almost 10 years is... New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. the City of New York. So the City of New York law forbids licensed handgun owners from possessing or carrying or transporting their weapons outside of their homes except when unloaded, locked, and in a container to and from a gun range. We know there is a lot of public support for gun control these days. Ed Warren, question for you how would you try it, and 
what do you think should happen here? Well, I mean, it's, which side do you want me to try it on? <laughs> but uh, but uh, let me say this. First of all, the Heller decision, which is the Supreme Court's decision on gun uh, um, rights, actually argued by Ted Cruz, I think, uh, in the Supreme Court uh, 10 years ago, uh, was a five to four decision written by Scalia. And it was um, controversial in its own right. Uh, for example, just Judge Posner on the Seventh Circuit, who is one of the leading uh, legal intellects of the 20th century, the early 21st century, said on, from, an, from an originalist standpoint, Heller was wrong. Having said that, Heller makes clear that uh, it's not a ban on all legislation uh, regarding uh, guns. It's a trade-off. It's what we've been talking about between what are the pros and what are the cons. Now, uh, if I were uh, arguing the case for the state of New York or the city of New York, whichever it is, I'd say, well, this falls within the uh, permissible uh, range of uh, regulations by uh, states and, and localities. Uh, arguing on the other side, I would say, wow, you know, this, uh, this really goes uh, far because it regulates not just assault wipe weapons or very dangerous weapons, but it also regulates handguns. And not only does it regulate handguns, but it regulates them in uh, public areas or even across state lines. And it, it, it therefore is an infringement on personal rights. And consequently, this statute goes too far. And even uh, though it is true that Heller uh, permitted uh, regulation, didn't shut down regulation, this one goes too far. That's what I think you'd probably argue it on both sides. Yeah, the issue in Heller, and uh, I appreciate the w- way Ed brought up Judge Posner. Judge Posner was a Nixon appointee, I believe, to the um, to the circuit court in in the Midwest, and a leading intellectual libertarian slash conservative, a very brilliant judge. Uh, I totally agree with your uh, conception of him, and he said that Heller was totally unsupported on originalist grounds. In that particular case, it was a very rational decision. Because the right of a militia is so important. Isn't this one of those times where you have to not redefine, but add to the detail about what was meant when the Bill of Rights was written. Because back then, as you mentioned before, you were talking about a rifle that you had to load, you had to pack, you had to fire, you had to reload, you had to pack. Now, if technology brings us to the point where the Smith & Wesson Company creates some kind of a nuclear weapon that's shot out of a handgun, then are we saying that we should have the right to carry such a thing? Or should we rewrite yeah, I mean, the I, law? Yeah, you know, first of all, Heller is the law. It's stare decisis. Now, can, can, can we overturn it? Look, there's pretty doggone good arguments that Posner, I think, probably did the best job of, of putting together that, that it was not meant to be an individual right. Okay, now, what does that mean in practical terms? Uh, we have an in, individual right to, to bear arms. Okay, 
The Supreme Court has assiduously and carefully stayed away from any further decisions since Heller. Because Shouldn't they at this point be defining what bearing arms means? Well, I think that's, that's what they're being asked to do. Now, I think what, what, what you're going to end up with, uh, if, if there are a lot of cases litigated on this issue, and there will be given time, is a kind of a compromise situation like you have with Roe versus Wade. They're not going to overturn Heller, uh, I don't think. I mean, that's more possible than it is with Roe versus Wade because it's a more recent decision and hasn't been revisited the same way that uh, Roe versus Wade has been revisited. But assuming for a minute that it's not overturned, which would be my assumption, especially with today's court, because I think the the added members are going to be on Scalia's side of this case, especially as stare decisis. So what are we going to end up with? Well, I think there's nothing in Heller that prevents any of the legislation we here talked about, uh, assault weapons or, uh, and, or any of these background checks. All that stuff is perfectly okay under Heller, I think. And so the question is only... But is it perfectly okay for today's society? Have we learned a lesson or two, and do we need to change... But the answer to that is a legislative... The, the answer to that is a legislative amendment, not overturning the amendments, because that's not possible. It's a practical matter to get a constitutional amendment on a subject like this. I don't think anybody at this point... And this whole fear about we're trying to take away guns... It seems to me clear that on a number of moderate forms of gun regulation, there is 90% support. I mean, background checks. And, you know, look, I got nothing. I mean, I've dealt with these guys from the um, National Rifle Association. They're a narrow partisan group and that has influence on elections, no doubt about it. But look, I mean, this is just another example of Congress is supposed to legislate. Congress is is the most powerful constitutional part of our government. The courts and the executive branch are secondary, as Ed outlined the structure, and I agree with that. So that means this is for Congress to decide and for the state legislature. But you know to. it's going to go to the court. Well, I, it'll go to the court, but the court is going to end up with a middle ground. The court, If the court had 10 different... Uh, Even if there's another appointment from the conservative side to the court? I don't think it's going to make much difference myself. I mean, I, I mean, that's because I think there are good arguments on both sides. And, you know, you don't want to... They're not going to overturn Heller, I don't think. Especially this court is not going to overturn it. So then the question is going to be, well, what can we regulate? How can we regulate? And I think if there's – the court is not going to overturn anything that has 90 percent, 80 percent, 75 percent public support. So I'm looking at an article right now, a recent article on CNN that says Brett Kavanaugh – uh, now that he's on the court, with, with him being on the court and now that he is going into his second term, the court might be ready to take a more expansive view of the Second Amendment. I don't believe what that. What say a, you? I don't believe that for a minute. I think possibly Gorsuch might be a little more sympathetic. I, There's been a political use of the Second Amendment. And so you get politicians like President Trump and certain Republican politicians and certain ideologues and certainly the NRA who have used the Second Amendment to say, well, you can't do any restrictions. And so then the question becomes, 
how has the Second Amendment been used in a political sense, I think abused in a political sense, to browbeat the opposition and to try to give a constitutional wrap to their arguments that people can have assault weapons and people can have do all sorts of things that the Second Amendment was never intended to cover. So, Ed Warren, can you tell us, this is your opinion I'm asking for. I want your opinion on the argument you're trying to take away our Second Amendment rights. That means to Trump supporters any regulation of guns whatsoever. Uh, and if the question is, what does that mean in terms of the Supreme Court? I think it means uh, even though there is, uh, through Heller, a constitutional right individually to bear arms, that does not preclude any kinds of, uh, any reasonable regulation of guns Going. There you go. And so that, you know, that's why I think this issue, given a world enough in time, is going to end up supporting what the majority of people want to do. And that's the way we ought to make these decisions anyway. The Congress ought to be making these decisions. And the state legislatures and the city councils should be making these decisions on their own. And I think most everything they want to do is going to end up being upheld by the Supreme Court, notwithstanding Heller. But should they be following public opinion? The public has only a superficial understanding of specific kinds of issues like this, and they vote kind of seat of the pants. That's what happened with Brexit, uh, where you have you have you put the to the public a simple-minded kind of proposition. Should and we, you get a simple-minded public? So there a, you go. Yeah, and which it would be a lot better off with people who can understand the complexities of of uh, stripping away EU membership and all the problems economically and socially that would attend that kind of decision. Those are the people that should be making the decision, not the public based on one-line uh, uh, referendum. Question about continuing this thought about the, the NRA and the Second Amendment. Yeah. Jeff, Jeffrey Tubin wrote an article for The New Yorker right. a few weeks ago, and I want to read this sentence and I want to get your reaction sure. to it. The power of the NRA extends beyond its control of the legislative and executive branches of the federal government. It is less well known that the NRA has also transformed the judiciary and in the process rewritten our understanding of the Second Amendment to the Constitution. You know, all I can say is if the public feels strongly about these issues, the, the Congress and the state legislatures and the city councils should be imposing regulations that they think are proper and necessary, and I think the Supreme Court will uphold them. Now, uh, if, you, if you mean does the appointments that Trump has made to the lower courts and to the Supreme Court make it less likely that the Heller decision will be overturned? Yeah, I'd say marginally, I think that's probably true. Well... That was a great way to end our show. Uh, Lori Dew, I hope you'll come back and help us host once again. Uh, Ed Larson, as always, you are a veritable compendium of constitutional knowledge. And Ed Warren, this has been a truly dynamic discussion, and I hope you'll come back and continue it. Thanks very much for joining, and we'll see you right here in the middle. If you like what you heard, please help us by telling your friends. And of course, subscribe to Politics Meet Me in the Middle. And if you have time, 
please leave a review. It really matters to us. You can also check us out at kurtco.com, C-U-R-T-C-O.com. This episode of Meet Me in the Middle was recorded at Kurtco Media's Malibu Podcast Studios and was produced and edited by Mike Thomas. Audio engineering was by Michael Kennedy. And our theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. It will be okay. From Kurtco Media, media for your mind.